Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. I must commence with a confession. When our old friends at Hanover House asked me to select the contents of this volume, common decency demanded that I should shrink away from the awful vision of coals of fire showering down upon my head from those whose favorites had been omitted. Instead, and I admit brazenly, I pounced upon the opportunity to air my own views. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. What have British novels to offer readers? Which are the great British novels? Why should we read British literature? Joining us today on the Wittenberg Hour is Mrs. Ellie Wagner. Mrs. Wagner teaches tragedy and the art and history of composition for Wittenberg Academy, and also serves as host of Shakespeare Troupe, a popular club here at Wittenberg Academy. Ellie, it is great to have you back on the Wittenberg Hour. Today, we are going to rejoin our conversation on great British novels. Here we are for part two. And so thinking about that, um, let's uh, press on and look at our next uh, uh, novel on your list. Uh, We finally get some Dickens. Uh, So, um, you know, different uh, of our listeners when we say Dickens, uh, one novel over another will come to mind. Um, why did you choose the one that you did? That is a great question. I chose David Copperfield, and I chose David Copperfield with the disclaimer that I have not read it. Um, I have not read David Copperfield before. In fact, the only Dickens I have actually read all the way through, I've read snippets of others, is that I've read Oliver Twist all the way through, which is a great novel. I really enjoyed Oliver Twist when I read it. Um, But I have only read that novel as far as Dickens is concerned. However, I think that Dickens is an exceptional novelist, and I think that he needs to be on a list of great British novels. But I think this is when preference comes into play, because... The only reason I don't pick up Dickens longer, more than I do, is that the culture and the time period that Brit, um, that Dickens write about, writes about in England is not, a, is not a time period I am that interested in. It does not engage me necessarily as much as other things. So when I'm looking for something to pick up, especially something of a more notable size, I typically don't pick up Dickens because... It's, it's not a time period that I am dying to hear more of. However, I chose David Copperfield specifically. So, you know, if I choose this one, why this one over the other probably more revered novels of A Tale of Two Cities and um, the other one whose name is escaping me and will arrive very quickly in my head after I keep talking. Um, but the two really, really big ones, Great Expectations, There we go. Uh, So those are the two that I hear most people pick. The reason I picked David Copperfield is because Dickens is a contemporary of my favorite author. Dickens is only about nine years older than Dostoevsky in Russia. And Dostoevsky beloved, like was, was 
regarded Dickens as a hugely beloved author. He loved Dickens novels. Um, and David Copperfield is his favorite. Um, he found David Copperfield extremely um, inspirational and relatable and very funny to the point where his, um, his nickname for his wife when they were poor, exiled, not really exiled, but living abroad was the names of the main characters of David Copperfield, um, which is, I believe, macabre is how you say it. Um, so he called his wife very fondly Mrs. Macabre, and she called him Mr. Macabre from David Copperfield. And it was this inside joke and delight with them to be able to survive their stint of poorness and their time abroad when they both missed their home in Russia. And so to me, that is a review that I am willing to stick with and his love and passion for it, because in many ways, Dostoevsky's novels have great comparison to Dickens. He does a similar sort of portrayal of Russian culture at the time that Dickens is doing of British culture. And I, of course, find the Russian culture far more interesting. So if I am looking for a novel of that caliber, I tend to turn towards my Russian authors instead of Dickens, although David Copperfield is very high on my list. My guess would be that you have read David Copperfield and might have things to add about this novel in specific. Well, uh, yes, I have read David Copperfield and would highly recommend it. Um, I'm I'm a big Dickens fan. Um, when I was uh, in high school, I went on a, a Dickens binge and read just about everything I could get my hands on in terms of Dickens uh, one summer, and so so that's um, that's that's my my Dickens uh, my Dickens past. Um, but I find really fascinating um, the connection between Dickens and Dostoevsky. Um, when I picked up Crime and Punishment and began reading that, um, I actually thought about the the setting the 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 scenes that he sets before the readers in which we find ourselves engaged um really i thought i could have been reading a dickens novel i mean i i actually um, had that thought run through my head. So for you to verbalize that um, is absolutely fascinating. Um, and I did not know that connection that uh, Dostoevsky um, had, uh, that he revered uh, Dickens. So that that is, um, that's a fascinating piece that kind of confirms that. And I don't know, um, you know, how influential they were on uh, one another, but that's just an interesting connection to ponder um, and is kind of a delightful one at that. Yeah, it's one of those ones, again, where we talk about Russian literature in one conversation and we have British literature in a different conversation. And I think I would I would wager that there are a lot of people who don't realize that these two are contemporaries and that they lived at the same time. Um, they were born within 10 years of each other. They died within 10 years of each other. And they had access to each other's copies. I mean, Dostoevsky lived in France for a while. They were very close to each other in proximity for a fair number of years. Um, so we have this interaction and this is a greater conversation that is happening. And that's why, again, I think it's very important for us to, as teachers, remember to research and look into 
what is truly happening at the same time in the same kind of conversation. This is something I talk about with all of my students or try to incorporate into as much of my classes as possible is um, what is happening at the same time? What is the general question? What is the debate? And for Dickens and for Dostoevsky, we could we could spend a very long time comparing the two, and it would be a delight probably for the two of us more than anything else. We should probably um, do this at some point. Probably. But they are concerned with similar things, but with their own people. And that's why you can kind of see some camaraderie in their own individual novels, but together. And as you read one, you can read the other. And that is one of the reasons that I'm very happy to vouch for a book by Dickens that I haven't read is that from reading the Dickens I have read, it does remind me very much of my very favorite author. And that is very high praise. But because it reminds me so much of my favorite author, I tend to then go pick up my favorite author and then get distracted and not finish my Dickens novel. So that's kind of a big thing that we need to talk about. And again, we can we can spend a very long time talking about that greater conversation. And perhaps that's something that we can do is choose a few different pairings, you know, like Dostoevsky and Dickens, and then maybe a few other authors who are contemporaries of each other that we never discuss together. Um, and we can compare the two and just have these two artists who are in dialogue with each other who we don't realize are in dialogue together because we have now separated them as an educational practice. So maybe that'll be like a future project of ours is to discuss some of those contemporaries in classical art and how they discuss things simultaneously and together through their own work. So I have no doubt that our listeners are going to be clamoring for that. Uh, it's just such an intriguing idea. And our listeners are the best and they like pondering intriguing things. So, uh, so this is fantastic. All right. We've finally gotten uh, to a Bronte. And so uh, now explain to us, um, we, we, don't, we don't have Charlotte though. Uh, so uh, who, who do we have and, and why do we have her? We have Anne Bronte and we have her novel, Tenant of Wildfell Hall. And the reason that we have Anne is because Anne is honestly the outcast Bronte. Um, her other two sisters are much more revered and Anne is not. And Anne, in fact, is not revered by her sisters very well in her own life. So to kind of go back to what we were talking about earlier about why have people chosen to make Jane Eyre into a classic? Why is it regarded as such a great novel? The short answer to that is that she's considered to be someone who spoke for and advocated for a lot of women and women's situations about 50 years before suffrage even begins in England. And so she has this unique voice to show some of the, um, some of the struggles that women had without rights um, in England. And so of course, in Jane Eyre, we see some lies, we see some um, just outright deceit that happens to Jane throughout her experiences in the novel. And we watch her deal with them as she discovers them. However, I would argue that the thing that she does poorly, that Anne does well, is that 
she makes it clear that those situations when they happen are no good and never portrays in Tenant of Wild Fell Hall, the situation is good. You know, we also have a situation in which a woman becomes more helpless in the eyes of the law than she should in a situation in which she should not, when her husband is foolish and when he makes decisions that may either come to her harm or to their harm as a couple monetarily or any of those sorts of things, she has no voice in order to use it. And that is portrayed as a bad thing. Whereas in Jane Eyre, there is this slight romanticism. And in both of the elder two Bronte sisters, there is this slight romanticism or saint making out of these women, this idea that if you, like Jane, find yourself in this situation, you should be revered for staying and fixing it. And it makes, you know, that's a form of suffering that brings you closer to God and strengthens your faith. And that there's a way in which you are on a higher level if you are able to go through that suffering and succeed. And I think that this is a dangerous path to go down with the Bronte sisters. And not everyone who reads it thinks that way, but it is certainly an under an underlying theme of that novel and of the Bronte novels in general is this idea that should you choose to suffer the way that Jane is suffering, your suffering brings you closer to God. And it almost advocates for that. Whereas Anne in Tenant of Wildfell Hall makes it very clear that no one should try to be in a situation like the situation our characters fall into in Tenant of Wildfell Hall. And in fact, her older sisters try to market Anne's novel and discuss Anne's novel with the tagline that Anne was crazy and no one should read it because they disagreed with what Anne was trying to convey. So I think Anne saw the potential for men to grow and actually live up to their roles and potential as spouses and in relationships between men and women, whereas the Brontes are more concerned with, the older Brontes are more concerned with the idea that women in unfortunate circumstances should grow and suffer and become greater because they're in that circumstance. So that's why I chose Tenant of Wildfell Hall. I think it will really still appeal to our um, readers who love the older Brontes. It's very similar in style, but I think it has a much better underlying message and underlying philosophy to it. And it worries me to see how beloved novels that encourage young women or can encourage young women to enter into unequal or bad relationships. I, it, it is worrisome to see how beloved that can be. And so I think we have to be very conscious of that and very willing to disagree with that and know that we need to disagree with that if we're going to read the older Brontes. And Anne does a great job of putting it into more perspective. Yeah, that's fantastic. And we certainly commend that book, as with all of these books, uh, to our listeners to consider these um, and to challenge themselves. You know, if if they are uh, Jane Eyre apologists, uh, you know, maybe to uh, to challenge themselves to uh, to think and uh, uh, to think outside 
the Jane Eyre bubble and experience uh, one of the other uh, Bronte sisters. All right, so coming up next, uh, we have North and South. Uh, tell us about North and South and why it made the list. So I think North and South is brilliant. It is similar to the Brontes. It's by Elizabeth Gaskell. Um, Elizabeth Gaskell, I think, lives a little bit later even than the Brontes and certainly later than Jane Austen. Um, and Elizabeth Gaskell writes North and South in, in a similar style. Um, it's certainly much more modern language. It's very easy to read through. Um, but it is about a young woman, Margaret Hale, who moves with her father and mother to the north of England. And it talks about the division between North England and South England, just in culture. Um, the Northern people were blue collar workers. They worked in cotton plants and they made cotton and they lived, worked in factories and they are very blue collar. Whereas in the South of England were much more of the, um, the Jane Austen like people who are sitting in their houses and reading books and having dinner parties and doing all of that, right? This is a division. And there was this temptation to look upon the um, people of the North, these blue class workers as less educated, less respectful, and less, just less in general than their Southern counterparts. And it is really a book about Margaret learning what it means to be not wealthy and learning what it means to truly worry as a blue collar worker that you lose your job or that you get sick. And of course, working in factories in the 1800s is a dangerous thing to do. You know, you can use a, lose a hand, you can get sick, you can, you know, get a physical ailment in any number of ways. And so she has to struggle with the idea that work is not easy. And she hasn't really been exposed to this idea of work that is anything different than someone going into an office and talking about numbers and moving papers around. There is this physical danger to work. And she has to learn to either confirm her biases about the Northern people, or she has to learn to appreciate the Northern people for their own unique culture and way of serving each other. And this also plays into religion simply because the reason that she moves North is that her father is a priest and refuses to, I believe it's the book of common prayer, whichever of the like publications comes out during this novel, I believe it's the book of common prayer. He does not feel comfortable signing on to it as the official kind of hymnal or method for the church. And so he leaves his parish. And that is also a big part of this novel is this idea of what is worth leaving and uprooting your life for in a religious sense. And what is your duty as a father? And what is your duty as a family in those scenarios? So it asks a lot of really important questions, which again, I think are a core of English history is this idea of blue collar versus white collar people and this idea of religion and family are all just really good questions in this novel that is also just a delight to read. It really is. You become so attached to the characters and it's, it's, it is really good. I think it, it puts all of this into perspective very well. For yeah. Them. There, we see this in a lot of uh, British literature 
that um, we perhaps don't pick up in other genres um, that this this divide in terms of of working class, right? You know, it wasn't necessarily um, the agrarian versus the industrial. You know, it it seems to be that a lot of um, what we experience. Um, in British literature, depending on, you know, of course, the time period in which it was written, that uh, these, um, these different working classes and, and struggling and wrestling with these questions um, and thinking about, uh, you know, the questions that you brought up in terms of, you know, what is, what is worth sacrificing for? Right. And some of these sorts of, of universal questions that we can see uh, across genres, um, but that some of these these British novels, because of the circumstances, circumstances in which they are set, they really well afford us the opportunity to wrestle these questions and then apply those uh, conclusions or apply those ponderings. Uh, to our own circumstances or other circumstances that we see uh, in various other situations or genres if we're if we're sticking to literature. So the last book, uh, not counting any honorable mentions uh, that <laughs> that would need to be on on our list, uh, is Animal Farm. And so tell us about Animal Farm and why, uh, that made the the great British uh, list uh, for this episode. So, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Does Joseph Pierce put 1984 on? Right, he does. I yeah, think. Uh, both 1984 and Brave New World, but okay. uh, but not um, but not Animal Farm. Yeah. So the reason that I choose Animal Farm over 1984, even just in terms of Orwell is because 1984 is a rebuttal novel. It's not actually standalone and it shouldn't be considered as often standalone as it is. And perhaps this is another comparison that we can make in a future podcast. Um, 1984 is a direct response to a Russian novel from the 1920s. Um, and again, those two authors were in conversation with each other directly through those two books. Um, Orwell read the Russian novel named We and disagreed with the author's interpretation of a utopic society. And so he made his own in response to say, no, this is how it actually would be, which gives us great insight into the difference in culture um, that the Russians would imagine a utopia in some way compared to this British novelist writing a utopia in a different way. So those two are very different, but because of that, I don't think 1984 stands alone as well as it does standing in harmony with that novel. However, it really wouldn't be a list for me that meant a ton to me and thought that it, it meant that it was really, really worth reading if it didn't have some sort of political commentary. I love literature that makes political commentary. And I think that's a huge part of British culture is commentating on the culture and the politics of the day <clears throat> and dramatizing it and making it into what you think, kind of taking it to the extreme. We see that in The Man Who Was Thursday. We see this huge political commentary. Um, and that is one of our honorable mentions. 
because we've already talked about it. But Animal Farm, I mean, is one of the most quotable things in the world. And you can meet many, many people um, who are not avid readers or who haven't read it even since high school, who can still quote, you know, all animals are equal. Some animals are more equal than others to you. And they love the novel and it's really entertaining. It is a really intense novel. I know it is more intense or gruesome or depressing than a lot of people want to read, but I think it's one of the reasons we need to read it. We live in a society that is sinful and that pushes the boundaries of politics and culture and what it means to be human and what it means to be equal. And especially I think nowadays, those are huge questions and Orwell knew those were huge questions even when he was alive and wrote a novel that portrays to us some of the dangers of asking those questions and some of the dangers of taking those questions too far. And Animal Farm, I think, does that best. I think 1984 is brilliant, and 1984 does a lot. But I think that Animal Farm is succinct. I think it is powerful, and it is very memorable. And so I think that is why that novel needs to make this, is because that is a great representation of the other aspect of British culture, which is political commentary. They do commentate a lot on what their politicians are doing and the decisions that are being made about their life. Um, And we can categorize a lot of British novels underneath Animal Farm as novels that do a similar thing um, throughout the history of England. And so I think Animal Farm is just really crucial for all of us to read um, because of that, because its ability to succinctly commentate on politics in a way that is easy to access and understand, even as a young reader, and becomes more and more powerful the more you read it, the older you get. Well, and this is the reason, right, that um, we we do need to uh, be vigilant about the things that we have our children read, because they do pick up on things that um, you know, they do pick up on ideas and themes that are represented in these novels um, and and what such that uh, we might not, even though they're subtle, uh, children are smart and <laughs> they pick up on things. Um, and so we, we do need to be uh, aware of, of what they're reading and to put into their hands uh, great works of literature um, so that they can influence them accordingly. Um, Animal Farm, I think, is a fantastic pick. And again, one that we don't typically think of when we think of a British literature list. And so I, I think, again, as we started, uh, so also uh, do we conclude in that we've really blown up this idea of British literature, that it has to be this narrow uh, focused thing that uh, is, we can only think of a certain thing uh, a very typecasted version of of British literature. Before we come to a conclusion, before we wrap up this episode, uh, any final comments about British literature or anything you want to mention uh, in general? So there are quite a few novels that I think are really significant to British literature that I didn't list purely because they have made it onto other lists that we've talked about in the past. Things like La Morte d'Arthur, Jane Austen's Emma, 
things like Beowulf, of course, um, The Man Who Was Thursday. There are these other novels that are really, really brilliant and that we should read. I would love to hear from our um, listeners if they have novels that they say, hey, why haven't you read this? I was super, super, super intrigued by Joseph Pierce um, using Graham Greene and Evelyn Waugh. I think you pronounce it Waugh. It might be Wog. Um on his list because those are authors I've started to hear in the last year the name of, which I was not familiar with otherwise. Um, so things like Brideshead Revisited and um, those novels. I think Evelyn Waugh also write, wrote, I cannot come up with the name of it, but those are on my list to read. And it was very intriguing to me that he put them on this list of great British novels because I had you know, not heard their names until long after college. And so I'm very intrigued to read those and to discover them. And maybe I would then put them on my list. So I'm very intrigued to see if our readers have any authors perhaps that are not common or books that they would add to a British survey list that is, again, maybe pushing the norm and expanding the discussion. So I would love to see if they have any suggestions for us. But I did want to mention those novels that we talked about in past podcasts, because I do think they also belong on the list. I think also the tales of Robin Hood in general are great, but, but maybe less so in a, in a concrete way. You know, there's not a great way to choose the best author for Robin Hood stories necessarily. So there's a lot that you kind of can do with British literature. And as we've talked about, it's a very expansive subject and so I tried to choose some things that highlight some of the great discourses of Britain in general and British art. And I would be intrigued to see if I missed any and if our readers would like us to maybe go down the rabbit hole and chase after something that is more unusual that they've read. Um, I, I actually can think of the other honorary list that I think was actually also maybe on his. I think he mentioned James Joyce. Um, James yeah. Joyce, I think James Joyce is fan fantastic. I was very close to putting the portrait of an artist as a young man on there. However, I think that novel is very difficult to access if you're not used to discussing or you don't have, um, the tools for discussing it. It really is an abstract novel and it can be very off-putting. So I try not to recommend Joyce to people unless I'm either personally able to help them read it or I know that they have good resources and good ability to work through the novel because it is a very, very strange novel. So I would also put him as an honorary mention as I do think, especially Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man is a brilliant novel and should be read. But that is kind of why it's on my honoraries is I do not um, think less of you if you don't want to tackle that alone. It is quite something. So those are kind of my summary notes on British literature as a whole. Well, that is fantastic. And as we've been uh, talking here uh, during this uh, recording, I've been making notes about future episodes that we need to do. And as always, I would encourage our listeners to get a hold of us and uh, let us know uh, what, what do you want to hear us talk about? Uh, so uh, certainly reach out and, and let us know. We always appreciate that and love hearing from our listeners. Mrs. Ellie Wagner teaches for Wittenberg Academy. Thank you, Ellie, for joining us today. 
Thanks for having me. This was great. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.